Hey, welcome back. This is LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is a show where we get to know different members of the LGBTQ community. Today, I'm talking with Michael Verratti. Michael is a screenwriter. He also hosts the brand new queer horror podcast, Dead for Filth. Stay tuned. Hey, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk, too. So you are most known for being a screenwriter in horror. You yeah. also write holiday movies. Yes. I, um, yeah. <laughs> I want to yeah. get to that, but first, okay. can we just define what horror is? I ask because it's different than scary movies. Is that right? Well, horror is a encompassing genre. You know, I think that uh, I, I run into this all the time where people seem that I, I will tell me, Oh, I don't really like horror movies. And I guarantee that's not true. Because I, during the 80s especially, we sort of had this kind of uh, flood of a certain kind of horror movie. That Roger Ebert called them the dead teenager movies. <laughs> so I think that for a lot of people of a certain generation, when they think of that, they think of gratuitous violence. They think of kind of just like a little bit of sleaze. Uh, and that's true. There are, there are those horror movies and people who really enjoy them. I happen to be one of them. But uh, horror is more than that. I think that there are so many different subgenres and iterations of what horror can be. There's suspense. There's psychological thrillers. There are movies that aren't classified horror movies that I would argue could be. Because you have to have that element of peril, often to push a story forward. Uh, I think horror, for a lot of people, is a genre that deals with the spooky unknown uh, and threats that are kind of beyond our mortal coil, but sometimes very much attached to our mortality, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. So, for example, like a scary movie would probably fall under the horror category, but not every horror movie would be a scary movie. Right. Or am I just caught up on these labels? <laughs> well, no, I think you're caught up on the labels because I think that hopefully every horror movie in some way is scary. Touche. But what makes it scary to you would be different per film. Like if you're watching Saw, you're definitely sort of taken by the, the body horror of it and that sort of like sense of gore and torture. And that's very alarming. And I, you know, I don't always love that. But then if you're watching something like uh, The Others starring Nicole Kidman, that's a very slow burn movie where uh, there's something in the house, but that is, uh, that's scary too. Okay, Nicole Kidman, pander to the gay audience. Thank yes, you. Yes, absolutely. Very good. We love her. We do. Uh, what is it about horror that drew you specifically to it? Um, I can tell you exactly. When I was a kid, uh, I remember, I used to be a total scaredy cat. Like, I, my parents loved to tell the story that when I was younger, if the music on television changed to something dramatic, like, like you, know, you know how music will give you the cue something's going to happen, I would run over and turn the TV off because I didn't want to see it. There were things I didn't want to watch, uh, and it, it, it freaked me out. And uh, I, I really used to steer clear of scary stuff for a, a number of years. And then one night, I was looking in the TV guide, because I'm that old that we used to have to consult with that to know what was on TV. Uh, and there was this program that used to air regularly on Friday and Saturday nights through the late 80s and uh, all the way to the kind of the end of the 90s called USA Up All Night. And USA Up All Night used to do 
uh, double features of cult, horror, B-movie, and sexploitation movies, sort of like the off-the-beaten-path sort of films. And they were doing a double feature that particular evening of a movie called Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and its sequel, Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And for some reason, this notion like struck me as really funny, and I was like, I really want to watch this. I, you know, I want to see these. And it was kind of adult content. I'm very young. And my mom uh, I was... Very gracious because I pestered her and I was like, I want to watch this. I want to stay up and watch this. And she said, it was like, fine, but I have to stay up and watch it with you. Uh, so, you know, we get all ready. We watch the popcorn. I'm like laying on the floor, excited to watch the show. My mom like passes out 15 minutes in. And uh, I watched the entirety of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And then the way it used to do is they would just air the movies back to back to back to back until morning, just like in a, in a cycle. And I must have watched both of them a couple more times that night. And when I woke up the next morning, I was obsessed. And I think because from that moment, I suddenly had the realization there's a whole other kind of story and there's a whole other kind of movie that exists in the world outside of what I'm getting offered at the multiplex. And uh, I instantly was drawn to the idea that there are tales and films and stories that exist outside of the mainstream. And maybe people don't always like it because it's a little bit naughty and it's a little bit... um, inappropriate I don't know uh so from that moment on even though that was a silly one I was sort of into it and I started uh reading Stephen King I like devoured his books uh and uh the x-files happened and that was just like another great conduit and then I just started catching up on all the stuff that I think I had missed or the things that were happening and um it really just became a thing that I love and nine times out of ten now uh those are the movies that I gravitate towards when they come to the theater. I think maybe there's a, a little fuzzy nostalgia to it, but I just like it. They're button pushers, and that's something fun. Yeah. And you've written and talked a lot about different queer undertones in horror. Right. Were you always aware of that early on, you think? Well, and this is something that I've talked about a lot. I think that we're aware of it before we're aware of it. And that's what the conduit of horror to queerness is. And I think a lot of creators in the horror space who identify as queer and LGBTQ, uh, they often gravitated towards that material because they saw something in it, maybe before they saw it in themselves. Because horror, more than anything, is the outsider genre. It's a genre that represents an otherness. And when you inherently are other, you find it in other things. And maybe it's not always horror. I'm sure that the queer sci-fi geeks would say the same. There's a fantasy to it. There's a something so much more than, than what's around you. Uh, that, to me, is, is the deepest connection, that otherness. That's what draws, draws outsiders to horror. And that discussion goes through not just queerness. I've talked to female filmmakers who fell into the horror genre because... They didn't feel they were being represented, but horror often has stronger female characters than other other genres that we see being released in theaters sometimes. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, I also, did you see the movie uh, Do I Sound Gay? It was I a did. documentary. Uh, we talked about it before, but I bring it up now again because a point they made was that a lot for a long time, villains in movies were these really articulate, effeminate uh, people who, like, we as 
you know, queer people could read as queer, uh, and they had a precise diction. Right. And um, that, because we were the other, we were the outsiders, we right. were, um, you know, against moral society because we could not have kids and we could not get married. And so, like, what are we here for? And so that was scary. So we right. were the villains. We were the villains, but there is something to be said about the lack of awareness of a society that was not even talking about queerness either. Because we, as queer people, immediately identified oh, that. Oh, yeah. But mainstream America could see that flouncing Nancy villainous character and never make the connection, which is really interesting. This is a discussion that we talk about a lot when we discuss the movie uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, which has now throughout history kind of been identified as a very, very queer-oriented film about a boy who's kind of grappling with what's inside of him and who he is and like what he's drawn to. Uh, and there's a sequence in the movie where he goes to a leather bar, and it's uh, very clear what is going on to us but in 1980 whatever when that movie came out mainstream america just went to go see the sequel to one of the biggest films of the previous year and they weren't seeing it the straight director of that film for years would disavow this this idea that there was a queer correlation to the movie but gay people knew and We're, we have always wow. known yeah so are they just looking past it uh, i have to wonder too there's an amazing the thing that makes about horror movies is that it gives you a physical response. Right. No other movie makes you hold your breath or makes right. you gasp. And that can distract you from, like, these other queer elements. Was that right. a part of it? Well, I think that what it is... You mean for the straight people or for yeah, the queer audience? Yeah, for the, the straight people watching. I think that especially at that time when our own government was doing great measures to ignore our existence, they just weren't... It wasn't part of the consciousness. We now live in an era where... Gay is part of the lexicon. RuPaul's Drag Race has been nominated for eight Emmys. Like, drag queen terms are being used in major media. Like, I remember when USA Today said that Michelle Obama threw shade at Speaker of the House John Boehner. We would have never... Like, if you would have told me that a, a phrase that came from Paris is burning was going to appear in reference to the First Lady of the United States in the newspaper, I would have said it would have never happen because straight people don't know what that means. But now it does. Like, so now these are things that are in their awareness. So now if you sit down your straight friend and watch A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, they're going to be like, this movie's gay. But in 19, in the mid-80s, when they sat down to watch that movie, they just didn't see it because they didn't want to. And so we're talking about the audience. In terms yeah. of the creators, Was it that none of that was intentional, are you saying? Uh, no, I think that it was very much intentional. The The writer has sort of acknowledged his his complicity in, in creating that. The lead uh, actor of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Mark Patton, is an openly gay man. He uh, had also made um, a name for himself playing a, a young trans character in uh, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. He, his career always had kind of a skew of queerness to it. Uh, I think that there were people involved in the movie who were very much aware of what was going on. Uh, it's just really interesting to me that the studio and the director, as kind of like a straight skewing administration, if you will, just didn't see it. Now, Jack Shoulder, the man who directed that movie, has recently been like, yeah, I guess it kind of is. And he's like all about it now. But like he it for years did not uh want to acknowledge it. And not not for resistant reasons, he just didn't think that was the movie he made. Wow. Yeah, so it's interesting. So did that draw you to horror, the fact that there was a semblance of like LGBTQ representation in the movies? Well, I don't know if it did initially, 
But I think it goes back to what I said earlier. I think I recognized that there was something more there. Yeah, before uh, you had language for it. Yeah, before I had the language for it. Because you watch um, any of those movies from that time, there is kind of this spirit of the underdog and the outsider being the one who has to kind of persevere through this adversity. And if you look at something like the Friday the 13th franchise, it almost directly speaks to that queer experience if you were like in high school in the 80s because the bad kids, the kids who eventually kind of falter and succumb to Jason were the cheerleaders and the popular kids and the jocks. And meanwhile, the person who survives is like the tomboy or, uh, you know, the person who was maybe being made fun of by them. So it was kind of great on both uh, on, uh, for two reasons. One, you got to see the outsider win. And two, for more cathartic reasons, you got to see the people who maybe were making your life miserable in the world get their comeuppance on screen. Yeah. So uh, that's, that is part of, I think, the connection with a lot of people. We saw that outsider status be represented. And dependent on film, a lot, sometimes it was elevated and celebrated. And it gave you the sense that it's okay to be different. Gotcha. Yeah. Totally. I think that, too, that in terms of representation now mm -hmm. and the complexities of queer relationships, right. I still don't see that fully played out on screen. I'll see hints of it. I'm thinking specifically about how queer people are able to um, have really amazing relationships with their exes. Right. You know, we're able to hook up with a friend and it's okay. Right. We're able to um, talk about people we're attracted to with somebody we're dating. Right. And for straight people, if they were to watch that in a movie, I think that they would be confused and not buy it at, like, the level that exists. It's true. Well, I mean, because for as many leaps and bounds as we've made as a community, we still have a lot that we need to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the simplest way of putting it. But I think that there is sort of this thought that we as a queer community are sort of seeking the same things and have the same goals as heterosexual couples. And that's not necessarily true. We just want our goals to be treated as equal as theirs. Yes. That's, you know, I think that that's ultimately it. Uh, and representation is as far as cinematically speaking, I do think horror goes a lot farther than some genres. Uh, I've always said that horror, when done right, is the most powerful genre because you can use the mechanisms of horror to say things you couldn't say, whether it be politically, socially, or whatever, in other places. Horror do you have an, a, re a recent example for that? I could do examples all throughout history. Yeah. <laughs> horror has always been a mirror of what's going on at the time. If you go as far back to 1818, when Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, there was a large debate between the church about the kind of rise of scientific thinking. It's the argument of God versus science. Frankenstein is the embodiment of that. During uh, the, the discussion, uh, the, the follow-up of the atom bomb, Japan makes a movie about an atomic monster called Godzilla. That was not just a coincidence. When, at the height of the Bush administration, torture was on the national consciousness, uh, after, like, you know, news from Abu Ghraib, uh, Saw came out, Hostel came out. Um, the fact that Get Out right now, while following on the heels of Ferguson and, you know, the rise of the administration that we are, are facing and the kind of, like, racial tension, that's not a mistake. People like George Romero, who recently passed away, always used horror as a... Uh, as 
a commentary. The original Night of the Living Dead, which is a classic, was a film that dared to cast an African-American man in the lead in the time when that was not happening at the height of the civil rights movement. A decade later, when he made Dawn of the Dead, it was set in a mall, and that whole movie is a commentary on consumer culture. When he did Day of the Dead, it's all about the uh, military-industrial complex. He made a movie where a a paraplegic man was the lead, which you never see in Hollywood. So uh, a woke horror filmmaker knows that representation matters, and they know that the monster can be something else. That's the power of Stephen King. You know, everyone's getting excited about It coming out, but the reason It has stayed in the public consciousness is not because of a clown. It's because it is a story about the loss of childhood innocence, and that's something we all can relate to. Yeah. So horror, when done right, is about us. Horror is really about humanity. And that's, um, that, to me, is, is why it's so powerful. I think that I asked the initial question about labels of what horror is because you just named you named Godzilla, you named Get Out, right. and I would not have listed those as horror. Um, I, I don't even know what genre I would have listed them as, right. just like off the top of my head. And so I think that read to pose the question, do you like horror? I'd say, yeah, I guess. Right. But if you were to say, did you like Get Out? I'd be like, absolutely. I right. went the first weekend. Right. So I would. I don't associate those things. I, I just have to wonder who else isn't. <laughs> I think a lot of people, um, without naming names, I have had long uh, arguments with film festival directors when I asked them, why do you not program more horror movies? And they said, well, we don't really like horror movies. And I am flabbergasted. How can you claim to not like a whole genre? Because you're talking about a gamut of stories and different kinds of, of ways to tell those stories. I think that often when they say, I don't like horror, it goes back to what we were saying, they have a very specific idea of what that is in mind. But there's so much more than that. And I always reverse the table because I could come to you and say, well, I don't really like drama. You would say, that's preposterous. There are so many different ways to tell a, dra- a dramatic tale. Well, guess what? That's the hallmark of a genre. Genres can be many, many different things. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that there's a horror movie for everyone. And I guarantee even people who kick and scream and say they don't like the genre have several horror movies that they positively adore. So Totally. Yeah. So now that you are working in the industry, Mm -hmm. how did the expectation of what you thought that meant and would look like compared to what it actually is? Working in the industry? Yeah. Um. I think that as a writer, I sort of knew always what writing was. I I tell people all the time on the outside, because people seem to think that there's some sort of glamour to making movies, and there is. Like, you know, but what the world tends to see is the end product. They get to see, like, the pictures from the premiere. They get to see the movie itself, sort of maybe the tour if you take it to film festivals. But it's decidedly unglamorous in the making, especially for the writer, because even though the set is an exciting place where it's all happening and there's crew members running around and the director's yelling and the actors are acting and makeup effects are going on, that is already well into the process. Like, if you're building a house, I'm there digging the ditch and laying the foundation, and I'm doing it by myself most of the time unless I'm co-writing. So I spend many months writing a story alone. So uh, it's not really, you know, in terms of expectation versus reality, as someone who has always gravitated towards writing and had an interest in writing, I knew to do this thing that I loved also meant a lot of, like, solitary time. And uh, so I'm not shocked by that, but I am often kind of amused when uh, people will come to me and uh, try and 
ask questions about like the glamour of it all and I'm like it's really like I mean I sit at home and drink a pot of coffee in my pajamas some days and think about like you know ways to creatively kill the jock you know that's not always how it happens but you know. <laughs> yeah 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 I, and I you, you're talking about killing the jock but I, I know that it is more than just death yeah but uh, for you, do you I mean is death something that you think about a lot I probably know more than most people. It's funny because I, uh, in the first episode of Dead for Filth, uh, had Jeffrey Reddick, the creator of Final Destination, on, and that's a whole franchise about death. And not just death, but, like, creative Rube Goldberg-esque sequences of death. And I asked him, you know, how often do you look at something and think to yourself, oh, how will this kill me? And uh, he said not often. And I guess I related because, you know, for as frequently as I watch horror movies and talk about them uh my day-to-day life is is really sort of much like anybody else's i don't like sit around thinking grim morbid thoughts a lot most of the time i'm you know if i have time off i'm watching cartoons like i love adventure time or i'm hanging out with friends and things like that you know it's just sort of like a break like you know it's my passion but it is my work so sometimes i just like take a break so thinking about death all the time would be like very very grim but i will say that i uh it comes to me in strange moments. Um, some of the coolest sequences to me that I've ever come up with for films often begin with a, oh, wouldn't it be funny if, and then it spins from there. Like I, uh, I won't be like actively thinking of macabre thoughts, but maybe I'll be in the kitchen making dinner with a friend and I look at a cheese grater and I'm like, uh oh, and th- that's when it comes in. So oh, yeah. how funny. But, I don't think about death as much as. Like, when Matthew Shepard died, there was that famous black and white picture of him. Yeah. I think his head's, like, meaning leaning against a window. Mm-hmm. And he just, like, looks young and angelic. Right. And that was the photo that was publicized. And for all time, when we think Matthew Shepard, you think this 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 one image of him. Right. And so I think about if I were to die suddenly. Right. And maybe it was horrific and it was on the news. Like, what would be the one photo where they're, like, telling the story of, you know, the 20-plus years of this person's life? That's that would indicate the one photo. Yeah. And it just communicates so much. It does. Uh, And I think that what's interesting about the Matthew Shepard tragedy is that it happened kind of on the precipice of the world of social media we live in now. That hadn't broken yet. So in a way, and I think that pictures were more powerful because we didn't have the ability to take them. Like, I could pull out my phone and take 20 pictures of you and I just sitting here. Right. And... That wasn't the case. He, someone had to take that picture. It had, they had to go to the drugstore and get it developed. That's a special moment. So I think what is the question that you're asking, going off on that philosophical route that's a movie into itself, is what is the picture now? How do we even have that litmus? Because every day we have the opportunity to take hundreds of pictures, and a lot of people do. So what, what are we leaving behind? Because I think that, you know, the idea of a picture is that it's a memory. But when we take so many, how often do you go back through your Instagram and look at them like from 18 weeks ago? I've probably gone back all the way through twice in my entire life. Right. And it will, I guarantee, be less and less as the years go on. Yeah. I haven't even, I know what my first picture on there was, but like the idea of scrolling back is exhausting. And But that's the point. That's, you're supposed to be looking at them. You want to keep them for a reason. So, yeah. yeah. I think too, like with that yeah. picture, it's like the media needed to do, have a sympathetic, you know, person and yeah. show this like nice, like sweet looking kid. Right. But I also think that that's why the Laramie Project, that play was so important and powerful. Because yeah. before social media, we needed right. to tell the story and mm. that was the only way that we could. 
Well, and, you know, to bring it back to your original question earlier, the Laramie Project is a powerful social piece based on a true event, yes. But when you dig through the levels of grief, this expose on death and dying and the cruelty of the human spirit, that's a horror story. But it's the truest kind of horror story. Uh, I think the kind of horror stories that people often think about are these flights of fancy. And maybe we need those for catharsis, because when you look at the real horror stories, like the, the story of Matthew Shepard, I think one of the scariest movies in the world is Schindler's List, because that's a horror story. But when you have to think of the reality of it, you want to file it under something else, because the notion that real people did this to real people is a lot to comprehend. And so yeah. in order to enjoy horror for what it is, which is a form of entertainment, yes. it needs to be a little bit heightened and a little bit extreme so that you know it's not like going to happen to you when you go home at that night? Is that what you're saying? I think I think to some extent, yeah. Uh, you know, a quote that I often quote, and I think it's because it's a uh, a a true statement, is that Wes Craven once said that we don't go to horror movies to be scared. We go to them for release. And uh, guys like him and John Carpenter and Stephen King know how to use that mechanism for the catharsis. And because they know we need it. But, you know, I think also as adults, we want to kind of stare at that darkness and push it away, too, as opposed to kind of grappling with the real darkness that's in the world. Um, And that's like, that's a whole, like, other deeply philosophical discussion. I'm sure someone could write papers, pages and pages upon that. But oh, oh what you're saying, like this manufactured darkness, is right. easier to cope with. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Oh, I'm just thinking about the. Um, it came out last year, and there was a blind man, and the people broke into his house. Don't breathe. Yes. Yeah. Did you see that? I did. I'm just thinking now, talking to you about all the social um, implications, but also like. Uh, comments on it it was mm-hmm. taking place in detroit there right. was like abandoned houses right and this man was defending his the like last home in the neighborhood right and no we see i think that we're starting to see uh echoes of of the world as it stands now through this fantastic lens detroit's also represented in it follows you see you know even though that movie is about a haunted STD, basically. Uh, there is a sequence where the kids in the movie are walking through the, the abandoned streets of Detroit, trying to get to where they're going to trap the monster. And the conversation is not really about the plot at that point. They're just talking about like what happened to this town that we used to live in, uh, that we live in now. Um, and that's sort of the commentary on the socioeconomics of, of the world that those kids live in. And that's a reality for people. Yeah. Um, and I think there's something to be said about like watching them in this kind of depressed town, but beating this monster. It kind of sends also the message like, look what they overcame, stick with it, you know, kind of deal. Gotcha. What do you think about all of the movies that they keep uh, doing reboots of, like the Chainsaw Massacres and uh, the franchises that they're still creating? I mean, I'm of two minds of it. Like, I guess that remakes to me aren't as big of a sticking point as they are with other fans of the genre because throughout human history when we find something we like we kind of keep doing it over and over again like how many adaptations of shakespeare have we seen many 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 you know you there will be many more in my lifetime alone and past you know i think that 
when something enters the lexicon, I think when, because we can see the genesis of something, we don't think of it the same way. And I'm not comparing Chainsaw Massacre to, to, to Shakespeare, but what I am saying is that when you can see the starting point, you don't always think of it as part of the, the new mythology. Um, and it is, though, because our pop culture defines where we are culturally. It defines who we are as a people. And so when we find a story that hits, we want to keep telling it because we're interested in it. And so the idea that they keep remaking things isn't shocking to me because we've really been doing it all throughout human history. I think now more than ever, it seems like maybe there's too many of them. And I think that's probably for money reasons. Like, you know, realistically, I'm talking about the idealistic side of remakes, but there's also the business yeah. side. Um, and I get kind of annoyed because I think there is this thing where we keep going back to the nostalgia well and trying to create uh, false nostalgia out of things that existed. But you cannot recreate nostalgia. You have to do something new. And um, even if it's with familiar characters, you can't just give people the same of what they grew up with because there's a certain magic and environmentalism that goes to that experience that you can't recreate. I think that that's an amazing segue, talking about nostalgia, into your more recent ventures into holiday movies. Okay, yeah. Because looking at the list of movies, it's, it's very funny. It's, um, it's from Hell She Rises, Christmas in Vermont, and Darkest Slumber, Broadcasting Christmas. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, you've, you've, it's, Hollywood loves to pigeonhole people, mm-hmm. and it seems like you are really like successfully transitioned. Not transitioned, you're still doing both, but you've right. transitioned into that right. world. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I did, uh, there's a correlation. Honestly, I had, uh, written a, a number of low budget indie horror films and a friend of mine who's a producer of some of these TV Christmas movies that you see on Ion and Hallmark and Lifetime. Uh, he had a couple years ago there, they had a slate of movies lined up and they were down one. They needed, uh, the network needed a slot filled and they just didn't have a script and they were on sort of a budget, and he knew that with uh, the, the horror films I've done, I had managed to like make tight stories for like a cost. And it wasn't for any other reason than we didn't have a choice when we made them. But it is a skill that you learn when you're writing these movies. Like, how do I make something good, but like not like go broke doing it? Uh, and he called, and he was like, would you be interested in writing a Christmas movie? And, you know, I love TV. I, like, I love movies that are... Uh, their own universe, which may be what like draws me to the world of horror as well. There's like a whole thing with it. And I've seen my, my share of TV Christmas movies. And when he asked, I was like, this is great, of course. So I wrote that movie and then subsequently did several more. Uh, and I love it. And it's a whole different audience. But and I'm sure that like maybe the networks would, would not love this comparison. But one thing I tell people when they say, well, how can you do both? Uh First off, no, as you said, no one is one thing. Like, I can be interested in sweet, fun things and dark, creepy things. And those, you know, like, can exist both inside of me. Uh, but I love memoirs by queer authors. It's not the only thing I read, you know? Exactly, right, right. <laughs> but I've often said that I, they're related because in their way, they're both cult films. And what I mean by that is there are communities surrounding each of these kinds of movies. And there are expectations for those. When you turn on a Hallmark movie and you're watching uh, a Christmas movie like Broadcasting Christmas, where you know Dean Cain and Melissa Joan Hart are like vying for a job and they begrudgingly like have to work together, but you know they don't like each other. If you start that movie thinking 
that Dean and Melissa are not going to end up at the together at the end of the film, you've never seen a Hallmark movie. And if we made the movie where Dean and Melissa don't end up together, the audience would revolt because that's what they want. I think, and so, I mean, the, the rules are different and the expectations are different, but the celebration of these kinds of movies are there and the expectations of those kind of movies are there. So although I think the Christmas movie crowd and the horror movie crowd would say we're not the same, how they celebrate their movies is. That's interesting. Yeah. The that, expectations for each yeah, one. Absolutely. Oh, because it's never going to have a Kramer versus Kramer ending. No. Right. I mean, there are ways just like, you know, you can subvert expectations uh it's what made scream so great is like people thought they knew what was going on and then they didn't and even with these hallmark movies i i did uh we did do something a little different with the end of broadcasting christmas than what you usually get for a a christmas movie and people responded well but you have to know the rules to break the rules and uh people love that and I love those movies. I think they're sweet and they're fun and it's so great, you know, around Christmas time because they all re-air. They're going to re-air for probably the rest of my life to get messages from people on Twitter and Facebook and other various social media who are like, you know, I just sat down with my family and I watched this and uh, they, they're kind of like comfort food for people and that's exciting to be able to provide that for a viewer and uh, I really, I do enjoy it. I, I love writing them. I love watching them. I, um, Get excited, and I know that I've made a few Christmas movies. I know so many people who make them that I get excited at that time of year when I see that Hallmark starts out because I'm gonna like watch them. Like I know her, like oh, I'm gonna cheer my friends on. But then like they're also sweet. Like it makes you feel good. I like the move. The movies get you ready for Christmas. I think. Oh wow! Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Uh, as a, as a Jew, <laughs> a Jewish person, I felt compelled to once ask you why there were no Hanukkah movies. Do you remember what you told me? Um. Well, I will tell you that uh, I would love to write a Hanukkah movie, but I'm not Jewish, so that might be disingenuous. But they uh, they just don't make them because um, they don't sell. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. What you told me exactly. You told yeah. me Jews don't watch Hanukkah movies or that's, want them. That's true. This and was this is literally coming from uh, networks run by Jewish men. They, right. They're the ones who made that decision. It wasn't. Yeah. And, and I laughed because I said, "Oh yeah, you're exactly right." Right. Yeah. Because it's like you know, I was like on the spot. I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. But I. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, but please. no, it's true. Like they. Uh, it's it's really people definitely lean into the Christmas thing, but not the Hanukkah thing. But I don't think that's because. Networks are trying to only push Christmas, maybe in a way. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not, not candy no, colored glasses, but um, I think that it's just the the demographic of people watching is very different. I think so, it's yeah. also just like traditions. Yeah, you know, no Jew. I mean, there aren't a lot of Hanukkah family stories, but um, no like Jewish families like let's sit down and watch a Hanukkah movie. Um, right. Also, it's not that big a deal in Judaism, and it's only a big deal because it's next to Christmas, and right. we like it's a comparison. Right, and it really shouldn't be. They're their own right. celebrations, I think. But yeah. also, if you were to tell me you were writing a Rosh Hashanah movie for Hallmark, I would say that's interesting. <laughs> Are you doing so, that? I'm not. But is this now? Now I'm going to go into to interview mode. Do you? Why do you? Is why do you think that Jewish people wouldn't want that? Well, I will. For Rosh Hashanah specifically, there is. A, Give me any holiday. Like if I well, wanted to do home for Purim, like what would I like? You know. Well, well most Jewish traditions. Yeah. They um they have a full night of activities already. Right. And so there's not actually like a two hour gap for a movie. For a movie. Okay. Yeah. Got you it. know, there's yeah. like the, there's a reading portion before Passover, right. and then we have dinner, and then we hide in Afikoman. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> well, whereas Christmas is an onslaught. Like, I yes. think, you know, even I, who am part of the Christmas industry now because of the films, I admit, like, it starts earlier and earlier every year. So it's sort of like, you know, by the time November 1st rolls around, like, we're like in the full Christmas machine. You have a lot of downtime to watch movies. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. And, like, Yom Kippur, like, we're celebrating, like, suffering. You know? Right. Like, I don't know if we want to like, sit down and watch TV for that. Right. It's Maybe repentance. you need one. That's the one. We need to have, like, a rom-com. Yeah. Yeah. to yeah. like it. Yeah, exactly. no, I just think of that as, um, I think it's so funny that it's Jewish executives making that decision. Right. And, uh, I mean, and I agree with it. Well, <laughs> you heard it, listeners. I, I'm all for the Hanukkah movie. I, and I'm the Jew saying we don't want it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's talk about your new podcast. Okay, great. It's yeah. called Dead for Filth. Dead for Filth. Did you come up with that name? I did come up with that name. It's very good. Um, I have throughout my career in horror and Christmas, among other things, I've had some like really wacky writing gigs and, and I uh, have worked a lot with drag queens over the years. So, you know, earlier we were talking about throwing shade and, 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 and drag terminology and the, there's a drag term like, you know, she was red for filth, which means you basically like, you know, critique someone up and down. And uh, I just, those are part of my consciousness and like ingrained into like my being because I have been sitting in dressing rooms and watched queens put their makeup on and say all this nonsense to each other and loved it, cracked up. Uh, and Dead for Filth came about because I do this annual panel at San Diego Comic-Con, which is uh, me in discussion with queer horror creators, whether they're filmmakers, authors, comic book artists, screenwriters, actors. And uh, we've had some great people over the years. Brian Fuller's done it. Uh, Gwen Turner, who wrote the screenplay for American Psycho. Uh, Josh... Miller and Mark Fortin, who wrote The Final Girls, lots of fun people. Mark Patton from Nightmares 2. Um, and I had met with Reverie, the the queer streaming service, about a project that was originally going to be like a narrative episodic show. And they liked it. They're like, sounds expensive. And uh, which was fine. And it's, you know, like and when you work in the industry, you pitch things and some things stick and some things don't. And so uh, after that kind of was uh, like, a not hit. We continued just sitting in the office and, and BSing and discussion about the Comic-Con panel came up and they were really into the idea of, of talking about doing it as a weekly talk show as opposed to this once a year event. And I went home and thought about it because, you know, as a screenwriter, I said earlier, I spend a lot of time kind of like in isolation, sometimes purposely so. And I thought to myself, do I really want to do this? But so much of my career has been centered around this and talking about this and writing about this and hosting events about this, that it made sense. And I called them and I said, I, I want to do this because now I get to take this thing that I do once a year for an hour with seven people and do it once a week for an hour with one person. And so that was the genesis. And originally they wanted to call it uh, Queer Fear, which is the name of the panel at Comic-Con. But that just didn't it didn't have the strength for me. I, I Also, there are other things out in the world now that are called Queer Fear. There's a book called Queer Fear, and uh, I didn't want to step on anyone's toes. For it to be the name of the Comic-Con yeah. panel is one thing. I'd be like, is it bashing? Is it <laughs> yeah. And so I, uh, I was in the car trying to come up with a title, and I happened to get a text from Pandora Box, the drag queen, and Pandora, I don't even remember what she said, but when I saw her name pop up on my phone, it just was like, 
Dead for Filth. Great. And that was it. That was the title ever since. So I kind of uh, tangentially owe Pandora, even though she didn't say anything. It was just like by, by reaching out at the right moment, she inspired. Great. Yeah. I love that. Um, we are almost out of time. However, one more question. Can yeah. you tell everybody who Waffles Extravaganza is? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, Waffles Extravaganza is... Um, the drag persona that was assigned to me by drag queen Peaches Christ, we toured together in 2010 for a movie that Peaches made called uh, All About Evil. And when you, and on that tour, Peaches did a live show with every uh, screening. So, like every city, we would go to a different city and Peaches would do a different performance, sometimes with a member of the cast, sometimes with local drag queens and things. And sometimes we would be in it as well. And because everybody else that works with Peaches has a drag name, she would not let anyone use government names, as, uh, as she likes to call it. And she told me that I needed a drag name. And one night we were in New York City at an all night diner. And there was a menu item called Waffles Extravaganza. And I cracked up because it was four in the morning and I thought it sounded delirious. It sounded stupid. And I laughed so hard that Peaches was amused by this. And she said, that's you, your Waffles Extravaganza. And even though I never have actually done drag myself, I mean, I was Waffles as a Frankenstein monster and, <laughs> and things like that. But uh, yeah, that's that's me. Um, if you ever see that name, I, we do occasionally still use it sometimes, but... I think Waffles, she's retired. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fantastic. Peaches is not, though. Peaches no. is going strong. Peaches and I actually are writing a new film together. She's been talking about it a lot in press, so Great. I'm allowed to mention it as well. Right, yeah. Something to look forward to. Huh. Um, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having yeah, me, Jeff. This was great. Good. Um, if people want to find you online, should we send them to your Twitter? Where's the best place? Uh, Twitter's the best place to engage with me. I'm very active on Twitter. That's at Michael Verratti, uh, V-A-R-R-A-T-I. Uh, and if you are interested in more about Dead for Filth, it's at Dead for Filth. Fantastic. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. That's the easiest way to contact me if you have guest suggestions. We love hearing from you. And we will be back next week. See you then. Bye. How'd it go? From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 